when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Eben Upton. He's the CEO of Raspberry Pi, a fascinating company that makes beloved, tiny, hackable computers that are extremely inexpensive. The cheapest Raspberry Pi microcontroller is just $4. The most popular model is about $35, and the most expensive model that comes with a keyboard is $70. They all run Linux, and you can do just about anything with them. People build robots, they learn to code, they run media servers in their house. There are Raspberry Pis on the International Space Station running experiments right now. I have a Raspberry Pi in my house that just connects a bunch of my smart home stuff together. These things are a phenomenon, and they're an underappreciated part of the computing world we live in today. They're also some of the only readily available computers that are designed to be tinkered with. Unlike a smartphone or a tablet or even really modern desktop computers, they're not heavily locked down, and using one requires learning how a computer actually works. And that's the entire point. Eben told me the idea of the Raspberry Pi was to create a product that enticed kids into studying computer science at the University of Cambridge, where he used to work. Just like the Commodore 64 or the Apple IIe taught a generation of kids how to tinker with computers, Eben wanted to give people an open computer that rewarded experimentation. The initial goal was simply to sell enough to increase the number of computer science applicants at Cambridge by 100 students. That's true, just 100, that was the whole goal. They've achieved that goal. Last year they sold 7 million Raspberry Pi units, and now there's talk of the company going public. Eben and I talked about all of that. We talked about the value of open computing. We talked about running a hardware company in the middle of a chip shortage. And we talked about how Raspberry Pi remains a sustainable business, even though it doesn't do any of the recurring software revenue games that basically every other computer company does now. In fact, Evan told me he'll never do that stuff, even though he's a business person who wants to make money at heart. This was a really good one. Evan Upton, the CEO of Raspberry Pi and co-founder of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Here we go. Thank you.
Evan Upton, you are the CEO of Raspberry Pi. You are the co-founder of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Welcome to Decoder. Good to be here. I am very excited to talk to you. Uh, I love uh, meeting executives from companies with products that are ubiquitous, but maybe not as explored. And I think Raspberry Pi is one of those with a, a long and super interesting backstory. It's strange. I mean, you say it's a long backstory. It really is a long backstory now. It was, it is a, the foundation was incorporated right, right at the tail end of, uh, of 2008. And then we had this very long and private prototyping cycle, I guess, of trying to, of kind of knowing, I guess, knowing what we, the sort of thing we wanted to build, but not knowing in detail what it was that we were going to build and what it was that the market was going to accept. Um, but even the sort of public bit of Raspberry Pi is now over 10 years old. So we just celebrated the 10th anniversary of taking our first order on the well slightly quixotically on the 29th of uh, the 29th of february um uh, 2012 <laughs> so we've had we've had two birthdays so far um, and, and, a, and a bunch of pseudo birthdays uh, that's great uh let's set up the basic because i think our listeners fall into two categories i feel like there's a category of people who intimately know everything about raspberry pis and there's a category of people who have no idea what we're talking about what is a raspberry pi <laughs> A Raspberry Pi, at its simplest, is a an almost exactly credit card sized um, single board computer. It's an object, a green PCB. Uh, you plug a mobile phone power supply into it. You put an SD card in it with an operating system on. Plug it into your television, and you have a PC. Uh, and we've made a number of different iterations of the Raspberry Pi over the years, but they all answer to that basic description. And you said the foundation started in two thousand eight. And then you had a long cycle of trying to figure out what to build. Why did you start as a foundation? That I think that's a very unique piece of this puzzle. Yeah, uh, we were trying to solve a social problem with Raspberry Pi. Most of us who were involved at the start were in one way or another involved with the university here in Cambridge. And Cambridge is it's one of the homes of computing. It's one of the places that has a claim. I'm actually sitting in a building called the Morris Wilkes Building here uh, on the outskirts of Cambridge. Uh, Morris Wilkes in the, late, uh, in the late 1940s built a machine, was a professor at the university, and he built a machine called EDSAC, uh, which, has, which is one of about 10 machines in the world that have a claim one way or another to be the first computer. And, and everyone has their own definition of first computer that allows their, their institution's computer to be the first. Um, EDSAC <laughs> was the first computer to be used by someone other than the people, really other than the people who made it. It provided services to other um, physical sciences um, departments in the university. Some of the X-ray crystallography work around the, the discovery of the structure of DNA, the computation for that was, uh, was done using EDSAC. So Cambridge is an amazing place to do computing. Uh, it's an amazing place to study computing. And we were struggling a decade ago, 15 years ago, to persuade any young people in the school children that they wanted to come here and study uh, and, and study computer science and really raspberry pi so the, the social mission that raspberry pi has always had has been to get young people excited about it to get get young people excited again because i think there was an era back in the 80s and 90s when young people were excited about computers to get young people excited again um, and it, it's always been about building a piece of hardware the idea was there's a missing piece of hardware that kind of corresponds to those commodore 64 trash 80 machines uh, of our childhoods so why i found we were trying to accomplish the social good, and therefore, a, I guess, a socially structured organization seemed to make more sense to us than a purely for-profit one. Let's unpack that there's a missing piece of hardware, and I need to get kids interested in computer science. If you walked around any 
other kind of social benefit organization or went to any conference or anything for the past 20 years, the drumbeat of STEM education is important was overwhelmingly loud. And then, you know, obviously we have a pre, we have a self-selected audience. <laughs> I believe our audience is very interested in computers. Right now we're going through a boom of people being interested in coding. We just had uh, Ruben Harris from Career Karma who will match you to a coding boot camp. What do you mean specifically by we were trying to get people interested in computer science? Because that, I feel like you're, you're talking about something very specific inside the world of you can be a crypto app developer or yeah. whatever else people might think. Yeah, I I think that that drumbeat has gone a lot louder mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons in the last twenty years. I certainly think when we started this, it wasn't particularly loud at all. Uh, yeah, when we started this, it was not long after the dot com crash. I remember uh, applying for some government funding for an early iteration of Raspberry Pi and receiving a letter from the government that had had the immortal uh, immortal sentence something along the lines of demand for computer programmers has declined recently and is not expected to recover. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this was very much, there was a pervasive attitude that this was yesterday's, yesterday it was a fad, that it had been, there had been a 10, 15, 20, 30 year fad, and that we were now out of the end of it, and the dot-com crash marked the end of, of an obsession with computer programming as a thing that, that significant numbers of people should do. Um, so I think there's been a, there has been a revival elsewhere, a non-Raspberry Pi related revival in enthusiasm. Um, uh, for computing. And that's actually been wonderful for us because it's meant that we felt rather having felt like a voice in the wilderness at the start, we've ended up feeling that we're part of a community of um, after-school clubs and coding camps and online material that's trying to solve the same problem. But the, the very narrow problem we were trying to solve was how many people are applying to study computer science at the University of Cambridge. It used to be 600, now it's 200. We want to admit 100 people. With the University of Cambridge, we do not want to have two-to-one applicant ratios. That's not how Cambridge works. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we want to have, we want to be besieged. Um, by, we never got to a point where we admitted anyone who wasn't clever, but we got to a point where we admitted pretty much everyone who was. Uh, and you want to be in that position of, of, of being able to be very, very, very discriminating. Uh, and so you've seen this decline, and we wanted to make the numbers go back up again. And it's such a parochial it's such a pro- and now I mean Raspberry Pi's end up in all sorts of places. Uh, around the space station. Mark, now. Yeah, it's only yeah, they're, they're about they're on the space station. The ridiculous thing about the ones on the space station, of course, is that there are also many other Raspberry Pi's on the station <laughs> uh, that, that are not our Raspberry Pi's. And so we only they they are running payload, they're great little computers for running payloads with, they're obviously flight qualified. Um, and so we only tend to find out we have no idea how many there are on the station. We tend to hear usually when they downmass the payload, somebody will mail us and say, Hey, you know, I've just had a pie on the station for two years um <laughs> so but they end up everywhere right but the, the the origins of this are so thin and parochial and about tuning a number by 100 people let's say let's say we make a thousand raspberry pies in you know, 2011 2010 let's say we make a thousand raspberry pies we get them out to a thousand kids and a hundred of those kids apply to the university that is a 50 percent increase in the applicant pool and that will allow us to be more discriminating such a parochial little ambition that is amazing i want to hone in on the fact that you said that we needed to make a piece of hardware because from my perspective we cover a lot of consumer tech products we i talk about them all day long and you mentioned the commodore 64 the trash 80 the, the trs 80 i would put the apple 2e in that list these are all the computers i grew up with where the guts of the computer were completely exposed to you 
and you could reprogram them at will. I remember my, the first video game I got for my Commodore 64 was I got it because the, the source code was printed in a magazine and I typed in all the source code and I went off and played a game. D- those days are gone and most computers are pretty opaque to people. It was that we're going to make a pretty open computer that stands apart from the hermetically sealed world of the iPhone. Of course, Android, Android phones weren't really even the thing then. Um, in fact, Pretty much the foundation's incorporation is contemporaneous with um, the iPhone launch. But there's been a long-term trend towards replacing general-purpose computes with appliance computes. So this is a vastly powerful computer. You can't see this, but Eben is holding up his, his iPhone. Yeah, that's it. My uh, iPhone 8 is a, is a vastly powerful computer, but it's not a, really a computer. It's an appliance. Mm-hmm. And that, that trend started, I guess, with the replacement of home computers as a platform for computer gaming, with primarily with, with games consoles. And it's continued over time to a point where the PC and the Mac are the only surviving, and now we're Raspberry Pi, um, are the only surviving examples of what used to be the way computers always were. And you know, the existence of general purpose computing is not, I think Chromebook is an interesting uh, example of an appliance, which really is, is being very successful at replacing a general purpose compute with appliance computers. So the existence of general purpose computers is not a God-given right. It's kind of a historical accident. It's a path-dependent historical accident. And, and what we came to realize is the thing that had absolutely gone away was the cost-effective general purpose computers. So there were lots of cost-effective appliances, cheap games consoles, cheap mobile phones, um, but there weren't any more low-cost general-purpose computers. And there probably had never been general-purpose computers which were as low-cost as a Raspberry Pi. Uh, and so really the idea was that, that cost had become a, a barrier to access to to devices that might beguile you into being a computer programmer. I was beguiled into being a computer programmer. I, I, I didn't really, on any given day, sit down and decide to become an engineer, a computer programmer, electrical engineer, uh, and I was tricked into it. And that was the thing that had gone away, and that was the thing. So when we were saying we're going to make a computer, we're not just saying we're going to make a programmable computer. We're going to make a fun computer that <laughs> happens to be programmable, because that's what our machines were in the 1980s, right? And so you need a thing which 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 beguiles its way into people's lives and then beguiles them into becoming programmers. And that's what we're trying to build. Your background, you were at Broadcom, right? You had like a day job. Yeah. On the side, yeah. you're trying to yeah. increase applicant pools to your Cambridge by developing So I was it. a director of studies. At, I, was okay. a, I was a director of studies at the university. And I'd been a director of studies um, at the tail end of my PhD. And I remained a director of studies for a little while after I, after I went across into industry. You know, we were fortunate that the devices that I had access to um, through that, through my job, um, happened to be devices which could be repurposed to meet this mission, this kind of mission goal uh, of the foundation. Well, because that, that's the the question is, okay, I, I can say, you know what the world needs is a $15 computer that is as charming as my Commodore 64 was. My ability to go and develop that thing is uh, shockingly limited. How did you go from, okay, here's our idea to we should do it to we're going to spend a long time in stealth figuring out what that product is to actually shipping yeah um i built something while i was doing my phd i'd built a thing based on our app mill chips are the same chips they used in arduinos and i'd managed to persuade this chip to generate a video signal and you could plug it into an analog television and it gave you a a trash 80s worth of uh, apple IIe's worth of, of processing capability half a meg of ram you know uh, you know a few mips of processing but it wasn't it, it absolutely did not meet that fun a kind of uh, modern definition of fun it, met, mm-hmm. it would have been very exciting for 
people our age, right? But it, <laughs> but it, it, it wouldn't have, it would never have taken off among young people. And then I, I ended up with access to these chips, which were intended for mobile phone, with intended for the, the mobile phone market. And those just they turn out to be very, very integrated. They have the ability to drive HDMI output. They ended up with USB. So, so, so you think about the interfaces. You go around the outside of a Raspberry Pi board and look at the interfaces that you need. Well, you've got you've got GPIO. You have some general purpose I/O. You have USB. Uh, and on uh, certainly until very recently, the way that Raspberry Pi did network was that it would bridge from USB two to to Ethernet. So you have USB, which both gives you your USB peripherals and the ability to bridge out to Ethernet. You have HDMI for display output. You have analog television, uh, and you have an SD card interface. So you kind of have these chips, and they were intended for use in mobile phones, but they end up having all of the things. You you look at them and you think, yeah, actually, that those, that I, that does tick all the boxes um, for for what we needed. For a long time, they didn't have general purpose processing cores so they didn't have arm cores mm. in them and obviously raspberry pi is an arm-based pc uh, organization and fairly late in the day sort of in 2009-2010 got access to the first the first device from that family what's we call the 270x family that had an arm core an arm 11 a very low end arm core in it and that became the basis for raspberry pi one in fact that's still a still a device we ship today so we still ship raspberry pi ones we still ship the product called zero uh, which is the, the the five dollar product, and those are still based around that very first chip, um, BCM twenty eight thirty five. So those ARM eleven cores, correct me if I'm wrong. Those are the same cores in the in the first smartphones. Are they actually the same? Yeah, I believe that the core in the very yeah. first iPhone um, was yeah. an ARM eleven. Um, was an ARM eleven. It's incredible when you think how far that chip line has come uh, through all of the generations of ARM processor and then out into into Apple designed custom uh, ARM CPUs. But yeah, the very first iPhone. I found one in a box the other day. Very chunky object, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, those were ARM 11s, right? You know, that, that is, it's not an unreasonable amount of performance as long as you have fairly constrained ambitions in terms of what you do with it. Well, the thing that strikes me is we're talking about appliance computing and we're talking about beguiling kids into coding and we're kind of talking about the same chip, right? Or the same components expressed in wildly different ways. That's the, it. And, uh, there's an interesting dynamic there, right? You know, you were talking about Apple too. You know, when... Steve and Steve were making the Apple One, they could go out and buy a 6502 from a, in an electronics store uh, out of a bin, and it cost them 25 bucks. And they were basically, for 25 bucks, getting their hands on the absolute state of the art in electronics, in chips. And so the thing you could build with that was going to be competitive with anything that anybody else could build, and no matter how big you were. You know, you could sit down and be two guys in a shed, and you could build something which could compete with IBM or compete with HP. That isn't so much the case anymore, that a lot of the very highest-end chips aren't generally available. They're only, gen- they're only available to qualified customers. And so one of the things that Raspberry Pi, one of the reasons I think Raspberry Pi has been successful in the, in the industrial space is to go and get... Uh, various pieces of silicon from various vendors, which are not generally, not broadly available, and package them together in a way that they can then be used as a platform for innovation by other people. And that, that sort of finds its, well, you know, Raspberry Pi, you think about the single board computer, the credit card size single board computer. Um, a lot of the growth of Raspberry Pi recently has actually been in what we call compute module, which is the um, the version a version of Raspberry Pi that lacks all of those connectors and is really only those core pieces of silicon that we've procured built a compelling stable software platform around and then released in a form which can be integrated into your uh, into your product. That's fascinating. I want to come back to that. I just want to finish sort of the story of Raspberry Pi. You started to get 100 more applicants to Cambridge 
The last number I saw is 7.1 million units sold in 2021. Uh, that was, yeah, 7.1 in 2020, okay. 7 in 2021. I mean, we are, there's a global semiconductor shortage on at the moment, you may have noticed. Um, <laughs> so it's really gallingly, um, we sold almost exactly the same number, you know, a handful fewer units in 2021 than we did in 2020 against just a background of absolutely exploding demand. Um, yeah. So a lot of the work we do at the moment is really managing our customers now. Um, through the shortage environment that we're in and helping um, people keep going. Uh, yeah, help, helping people who invest in the platform continue to build on top of it at a point where we cannot build quite as many. We're still building very large numbers, but we can't build quite as many as we'd like to. So, But that's your job as CEO of Raspberry yeah. Pi. Yeah. But this structure, you think, started as out of a foundation, which is just not how a normal startup begins. No. What is the role of the foundation? So the role of the foundation is to do good work, right? So it's a UK registered charity. It has a mission. So it has a, uh, what are they called? I think purposes, I think is the, is the legal word. It's the thing that a British charitable foundation commits to do. Um, and the purposes of a foundation can only be changed, I think, with the consent of the, the Charities Commission and, and the, the foundation's um, uh, a board and possibly membership. And its purposes are to promote STEM education and particularly computing education, particularly among young people, so particularly among uh, primary and secondary school children. And to do that, it does a variety of things. So it, 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 we, we return money to it. So we return our surplus profit to it. Um, and that funds some activities. It receives corporate and individual philanthropic money that it, um, it turns out that having a reliable source of income, which the foundation does from our work, is extremely valuable for corporate philanthropic partners. Because um, you know, uh, if you're a company and you're giving to charity, you worry that the thing you're funding will dry up and blow away. Um, and, and being able to say, well, look, you know, and so the way, the way that people mitigate this risk is they make very short grants. They make single-year grants. And that sucks for everyone, right? It sucks to the, do it sucks to the recipient because you can't plan long-term. It sucks to the donor because you end up doing an enormous amount of work every year administering these, these, these recurring grants. And so if you have an organization that you can that you could say this is independently funded, we can guarantee you that we won't dry up and blow away. We can guarantee that you that you, all of your money you donate to us will go on actual project work rather than on central administrative costs. We'll cover all of that ourselves. Uh, and in return, you can make three-year grants. You know, so it's easier for you, it's easier for us. So you can take that stream of, of revenue from us, that stream of, of dividend payment from us, and you can leverage that into the philanthropic space. We also do a lot of government contracting as well now. So we're a trusted provider of teacher training services, for example. So all of the teacher training for computer science in the UK now is uh, handled by an organization called the National Center for Computing Education. The Raspberry Pi Foundation runs that along with a couple of partners. While it probably started as an organization that spends the money from the sale of products in pursuit of the traditional Raspberry Pi charitable purposes, it's become a larger organization with kind of these three pillars. That's amazing. So what's the split between all of that work and then you run a thing called Raspberry Pi and you have enough volume to get chips that other people can't get and you now have a very commercial product that's just a compute center that, I don't know, maybe an agricultural services provider needs to just buy 100 boards to run, a, I don't know, like a wheat farming data cloud. 
I just made that up. I don't know if wheat farming data yeah, no, exists, yeah, but that's like probably the thing. That's probably yeah. the thing. We certainly are in the cucumber farming industry. I don't know if we're in the wheat farming <laughs> industry, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> so, but that's very commercial, right? I mean, that's like a that's a business. Like that's yeah. your job. What's yeah? Do you, is there a mission split? Do you spend your time thinking, okay, like the purpose of all this is to get kids into computers, but also I've got a whole bunch of extraordinarily commercial customers that are driving all of the money. Um. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I do both of those things. We're very lucky in that, with the exception of the compute module product that I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, we haven't ever really had to specialize. Well, okay, on the one hand, compute module. On the other hand, Pi 400, which is our kind of our trash 80 format, um, mm-hmm. Raspberry Pi and a keyboard. One of those is for our, clearly for our industrial customers, and the other one is clearly for our consumer customers and our educational customers. Um, other than that, the middle bit, the, the single board computer business, which is still the, the vast bulk of our units, we've never had to choose. We've never had to make an architectural or design decision in order to service one customer or the other. The things you do to be a good computer for kids are also the things you do to be a good con- computer for oil rigs. Or have this idea like, what's the tougher environment, an oil rig or a kid's bedroom? And I'm, <laughs> having been in my kid's bedrooms, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, and I have friends who've worked on oil rigs. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I would what care to pick. So I, I've never had to make a make a decision, make a, a difficult mm-hmm. decision there, which has been which has been quite nice. It is a good split because I'm not naturally a, a not for profit person. I'm not a. That's not where I come from. I'm um, a games mm-hmm. industry person originally back in the day. As games the most for-profit industry of them all. Yeah, that's it. You know, no, no, most for-profit industry of them all that I got into did a startup, sold my startup, <laughs> got the hell out by the time I was 22. So I was, um, uh, I did perceive it as being a challenging industry to be in for a, for an entire career. But it was a lot of fun while I was there. So that's what I'm interested. I'm interested in business. I mean, I always have. I've been interested in business since I was a kid. Um, I remember standing in the station in train station in Leeds uh, near, near where I grew up and watching as a kid watching the businessmen walk past with their, their briefcases suits and briefcases and, and, and like busy wanting to go somewhere and one and thinking that must be amazing you know to be busy and to have somewhere to go and somewhere that's important for you to go and so I've always been interested in, I'm just business geek really um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit sad but um, uh, and I did an MBA I mean the funny thing was I did an MBA just before we just before Raspberry Pi in that window between Raspberry Pi being incorporated and, and the the takeoff of the product i did an mba and i finished in april of 2011 uh, and told my wife liz who's a co-founder at raspberry pi i told her that we'd have a, a quiet time for a little bit and then the news of raspberry <laughs> news of raspberry pi leaked in may um and were leaked sort of we kind of leaked it in may and <laughs> uh, and it is not stopped yeah. since in, in in nearly 11 years now it, it's it's not it's not slowed down this is what i think of as the decoder question you have an interesting sort of decision-making space, right? You've got a foundation, you've got a mission, you've got a vast array of customers from oil rigs to kids in their bedrooms. How do you make decisions? Uh, we build the products we want to buy. There's a characterization of classic era Apple, or perhaps post Jobs' return Apple, as, as a company that built products that Steve wanted to buy. And the genius of uh, of Apple was that lots of other people wanted to buy those things, and that was why it was successful. Uh, and so we don't build the things I want to make. We build the things that, that I want to buy. We build the things we want to buy. And we have a big office full of engineers. Um, there are huge advantages to that as a way of designing products compared to the sort of traditional marketing-led way of doing this stuff. Because the problem with that is it tends to lead to interpolated products. Marketing, traditional 
kind of a market analysis tends to lead to products which interpolate between the needs of different uh, user communities. And it's entirely possible to interpolate. It's not a continuous space. And so it's entirely possible to interpolate between two decent, chunky markets. Uh, well, it's entirely possible to misperceive where the markets are. Um, but even if you perceive where they are, if you try to land products in between them, you can land them in an empty space in between two concentrations of demand. And the interesting thing about building the products you yourself would want to buy is at least there's one customer. <laughs> um, um, and, and often, you know, most people, most of us are representative of some class of, uh, of person. And if you're lucky, then it's a large and underserved class of person. And you end up with a product like an iPad or a Peloton bicycle or a Raspberry Pi that, I mean, you have Peloton, obviously Peloton's having a fun time at the moment, but um, the Peloton story is fascinating, right? I mean, the guy almost failed to get his Kickstarter to work, right? You know, he was really, his Kickstarter was only backed by his friends. No one could believe that this was going to be a thing and of course it turns out to be enormously enormously popular uh, and these category defining products that you can't market research or focus group into existence are often generated i think by that mindset the i'm going to build the thing that i want and we'll see whether there are other people like me how big is raspberry pi how many people the foundation is about 130-ish people at the moment. Raspberry Pi Limited, so my bit, is about 80 people. And inside that 80, you have an engineering workforce of between 40 and 50 people. Uh, we have a publishing company. We're quite comms-heavy. This is Liz, my, my, my wife and my co-founder. Um, she runs that aspect of things. Uh, we have very nice graphic design capability, very nice writing capability. She's a journalist. And so we've always, as an organization, we've always valued community and we've always valued writing as a craft, just as we valued electronic design and software engineering as, as crafts. And that's how we come to have a publishing company. That's how we come to have a bunch of copy editors and, and graphic designers and videographers and, uh, and people on staff. Inside of that engineering organization, right, you make hardware. Mm -hmm. You have to also make a Raspberry Pi operating system. What's the split between hardware and software? It's software heavy. Okay. All... Hardware companies, and this is certainly true from my experience in the ASIC industry, um, all, all hardware companies are really software companies uh, because you can't make the hardware operative without software. And the complexity of hardware has gone up more slowly over time than the complexity of the software that you run on it. Um, so even though we're leveraging, you know, we're, we're a Linux computer company, we leverage this enormous reservoir of collective endeavor. The, the, the Linux kernel and the GNU and Debian um, yeah, user land, um, there's still a lot of device-specific software engineering. So software engineering is probably two-thirds to three-quarters of the engineering team. I think I find this out every time I talk to someone from a hardware company. We just had the CEO of Sonos on the show, and he said, we have more software engineers than hardware engineers. We had the CTO of John Deere make tractors. He's like, we have more software engineers. It just seems like that's a universal rule. You have to have more software engineers than hardware engineers. Yeah, yeah, it's it's which is which is fun as a software engineer. I mean, I'm a software engineer. Um, <laughs> I, I, I the big big surprises for me with Raspberry Pi was that um, you have a people do different things in education space. People do do not do with their Raspberry Pi what I expected them to do. So I expected people to write computer games because that's what I did when I was a child. Um, in in practice, people build build robots. The interesting thing that you know, kids find moving atoms around in the world much more interesting than moving pixels around on the screen it's interestingly uh, it seems like we're producing more for a company that thinks that, that software engineering is where all the jobs are um it feels like we're producing a, a generation of hardware of, mechatron <laughs> of mechatronics engineers basically of, of, of hardware engineers um well in, but but i would say in terms of your uh your thesis right this will beguile you into doing something uh 
if you want to move pixels around a screen, right, the iPhone developer environment is available to you and you can get an app on your phone. And that, if you're on a Mac. Well, sure. But like you can yeah. do it. Um, yeah. Right. If you want to move an atom around the world and you're looking at your Mac or your PC or your phone, like there's no way to do it. And the best way to do it, actually, if you want to do it, is to plug a Raspberry Pi into this. <laughs> yeah, is to go buy a Raspberry Pi Pico, which is last year's last year's product, the ultra low and the four dollar uh, yeah. microcontroller based board. Uh, is to go plug that into your Mac or your PC and use that to move objects around the world. So we ended up even, I think, kind of solving the problem for physical computing with traditional objects uh, as well. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with a lot more from Evan Upton. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. Before the break, Evan and I were talking about the Raspberry Pi Pico. It's $4.00 but it has a custom chip in it, Raspberry Pi's first custom chip. So I wanted to talk about how anyone starts to make custom chips and then how they can sell them in a product that only costs $4. When I think of companies making custom chips, I think of the biggest players in the space. Apple, Microsoft has some custom chips. Google's doing some custom chips. I do not think of... Seven, you're seven million units a lot. It's more than I than I will ever sell of anything. We have a t-shirt store. I don't think we're moving seven million <laughs> units. Um, but you know, it's at a vastly different scale. How did you come yeah. to build your own ship, and what was that process like? Uh, the team here had always struggled. I think. Do you think about building the things that you want to buy? There's a constraint that you can build the things you want to buy, but you obviously have to build things that are going to make money as well. And one of the challenges with building something in the microcontroller space, which has always been an ambition for the team here, or something I was deeply involved with, but uh, is that if you build a platform on somebody else's microcontroller platform, you're creating value for the microcontroller vendor, not for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, say, an Arduino create enormous value for their vendor, which tends to be microchip. So they do a lot of software engineering, and then there is then a world of clone devices that use the same chips and leverage their software inf- their software investments for free. And there is, uh, when people design products around um, the Arduino software environment, they then go to, when they go to scale, they disintermediate the, the, the Arduino product, uh, and they, they just go buy chips. 
that means that it's very hard to justify doing software engineering if you're not going to it's hard to make an investment if you're not going to get the return and so it turns out in micro the microcontroller space that the winning move is to be the microcontroller vendor and if you're not the microcontroller vendor then then it's very hard to to make that work as a business model there are very few companies have made making microcontroller based boards work and so really rp2040 is is that it provides raspberry pi with an opportunity to build microcontroller boards to make very substantial investments in software engineering but then to have some skin in the game in, in terms of the, uh, the 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 result it means that you know every rp2040 based board has a little cut for raspberry pi uh, and that's it's important it's important in closing the business model and justifying the uh, the, the return on investment and you know uh, i yeah making chips is hard it's not that hard um, <laughs> if you've got the right people. It's it's yeah. one of those weird things, actually, which is it's either impossible or uh, trivial is the wrong word, but it's either impossible or tractable or, or really surprisingly tractable. And what it what that depends on is whether you have the right people. And there are, let's say, there are 10 roles, five between five and 10 distinct activities involved in going from the idea of a chip to something that's shipping at scale and is reliable. And if you have one person in each of those boxes, I mean, if you're going to build an M1, if you're Apple, you're going to build an M1 to power your, your, your MacBook, uh, you need a lot more people in each of those boxes. But if you want to build a chip that's relatively simple, as long as you have one person who is extremely skilled in each of those boxes, it goes from being impossible to being tractable. If you're missing one box, two boxes, three boxes, it goes back from being tractable to being functionally impossible. What are the boxes? Oh, um, let's see. Digital front-end design. Uh, so writing Verilog, putting your chip together, structured testing, so uh, getting via, via one of several, one or all of several different means, um, ensuring that your 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 chip is verified, verifiable, and verified. Um, so we'll do to, to some approximation, we'll do what it says on the tin. Uh, and of course, there is always a little bit of you write a spec for the chip, and then you make the chip, and you do your best to make sure that it conforms to the spec, and then you get the chip back, and then you actually write down what the chip does. <laughs> uh, and that's the spec. Uh, and hopefully, they're fairly close to each other, but there's always a little bit of of, of retrofitting of post hoc retrofitting of what you meant to do. Um, so yeah, there's a verification and there are sort of several allied roles in verification. A synthesis, so sort of floor planning, synthesis, place and route, your static timing analysis and timing closure. So effectively taking the, the low-level spec of the chip, so the Verilog, the synthesizable spec of the chip, and then synthesizing that to make gates, a uh, netlist, and then taking that netlist and laying those gates out on, on the chip in, in a way that causes the signals to propagate through the, 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 the chip uh, in time time to run at your target clock speed because effectively your clock speed defines a window of time within which you must do everything in a synchronous design dft designed for testability so this is where verification is about checking that the chip as designed meets the specification um, designed for testability means once i have a chip that's come back from the fab can i check whether this is a good one or not because a percent five percent ten percent of chips will be bad chips and you want to be able to discriminate between a good chip and a bad chip very quickly uh, on on a piece of automatic test equipment and so you design structures that go into the chip testability structures dft structures uh, which effectively let you exercise a substantial majority um, of the paths on the chip and ensure that they they are that they've been fabricated correctly in the fab uh, and then you have operations you then have operations roles which are effectively about uh, managing the the process of getting wafers 
from a foundry. Good luck with that this year. <laughs> uh, actually, we've got great support from our foundry partners, but it is it is clearly, you know, we can feel in all sorts of ways how tight the semiconductor supply chain is this year. Getting them sawn up, put them into packages, tested, uh, put into reels out to the customer. When one of them fails at the customer, get it back from the customer, do failure analysis on it to figure out why it's not uh, working. Oh, uh, qualification and characterization as well. So there are there are roles for sort of understanding. There are elements of the spec that you, that you really actually do need to do post hoc. Um, so, you know, how much current can I drive out of this pin? If I'm driving this much current out of this pin, what does the voltage end up being? Uh, how much power does the thing consume? Things that have to be done experimentally. So there, there are roles there as well. And then building all of the hardware, designing and building all the hardware is associated with that. So that's 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 a set of, that's a, I'm trying to get to over, because I said five to 10, I'm trying to get over five. And I think I got over five. There. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, that is fascinating. I feel like I could do an hour uh, just unpacking that system, but I just want to you sell this product for $4. Mm. We sell the chip for 70 cents. Right. That's uh, That just seems like that's a lot of smart, expensive people for a 70 yeah. cent chip that is packaged in a $4 controller board. Mm. How does any of this make money? Uh, well, it cost, I don't know what, project new. RP2040, I do. It's, it's probably like $5 million or something. Okay. Um, y- the answer is you sell a lot of them. I mean, that's the answer with all Raspberry Pi products, right? They are murderously expensive to design, um, particularly the modern big Raspberry Pis that have radios on, where we, well, one thing we do is we go and do radio conformance everywhere. Raspberry Pi 4 is a legal conformant radio emitting product in Tanzania. We take every product everywhere, and that actually piles up a few, grand, a few thousand dollars at a time. That piles up to just the radio conformance for a modern Raspberry Pi product is the best part of half a million. So dollars. you've got the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth radio and the thing. Is it just Wi-Fi yeah. or do you have Bluetooth too? Uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. So you've so got dual, dual band Wi-Fi these days and, and Bluetooth. Right. So you've got that chip and to ship that chip in every country in the world, you got to go and figure yeah. out who the regulator is. Yeah. To dinner. And you know, we couldn't sell Raspberry Pis in South Africa for a year once because the, their version of the FCC burnt down. Their office burned down, and they had a huge backlog. No one could ship new electronic products in South Africa for a year. So so you end up being exposed to all of these weird vulnerabilities, and you also Mm -hmm. just end up spending a huge amount of money on you know, three or four thousand dollars per country on, on testing. So all of these things are expensive and they all are basically powered by cell vast numbers of units. And obviously the the numbers for for semiconductor products are are much higher uh, because the number of cents you make on each unit is much lower and the upfront costs are proportionally bigger. Do you have that second revenue stream that I see every other consumer tech company racing towards, which is we're gonna turn this phone into a shopping mall? And every button you push on this phone is going to return a 30% cut to me, or we're going to do, I don't know, NFTs and video games. Now. Like every other c- company is trying to build that ongoing software mediated yeah. revenue software stream. company with recurring revenue. I, right? I, mean, I, 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 it's a, it's a, the phrase software company with recurring revenue is a joke is an in-house joke at Raspberry Pi. <laughs> I, I, I talked to an investor once and, uh, and he was said, I, I described all the cool stuff we do and that this is, you know, we have this and because, you know, it's all very well being a software company with recurring revenue, but he, but sooner or later, somebody needs to be making hard. Actually, there's a business opportunity, right? If everyone wants to become a software company, there's a huge business opportunity in not doing that. 
in, in being a in being a hardware company. Um, and we went to see this investor, and he's like, "Yeah, you guys are great, but you know, you should totally pivot to being a, a software company recurring revenue." We don't currently. So currently, because we're interesting in the software for us is entirely a cost center. And as I said, we're mostly a software company. So so the vast majority of our company is of our engineering payroll is effectively servicing a a cost center, which is interesting. We actually did try a very early on. We tried some sort of app store platform, uh, and it wasn't a success. It was a white labeled version of somebody else's platform. It wasn't a success, and it wasn't a success because certainly at that time people weren't seeing it as a consumer device. It weren't seeing it. It was good because we weren't seeing it as a consumption device. And we did it in the in the service of this idea of fun. That you know, if we want this thing to be fun and attractive to kids, it needs to have entertainment content on it, and you need a store to make that work. And we went through all the mecha- mechanics of doing that, and it just it just didn't fly. Would we do it? Uh, oh, it's hard to get excited about it. Really, it's it's like once you get to a point where there's something, and you know, by the time you're making your own chips, right? You've you've bought fairly firmly into the notion that you are a a hardware company. And that's where your your field of expertise is. But, but even um, the hardware companies, right? I, I, my my favorite headline at The Verge to this day in 10 years, uh, we just printed the words tortilla pods in all capital letters. Because, you know, I don't know if you remember this, that there was a period where every new gadget was like, it, it'll make drinks, it'll be a it'll be a Keurig for X. And mm. there, finally, at the end, someone was like, we made a tortilla maker. And there's a $15 a month subscription to tortilla pods and you'll put, put the pod. And it was oh, like, this is so God. dumb, but it was like, oh. right. It was like the, the, the pinnacle of the pod moment was tortilla pods and that, but the, all of that right came down to, you need a recurring revenue stream mm. and you are a big successful company. I think raspberry Pi is a cultural object now. And the recurring revenue stream is, you're gonna want to buy another Raspberry. You're gonna want to buy another Raspberry Pi. There you go. Right. That's, like that's, that's, re- that's a recurring. Yeah. That's a recurring revenue stream. Is the, you know the first one. The, the you, you, your first one will probably not be your last. And certainly with devices like I mean devices like Pico, um, at four dollars they have this interesting model where people embed them. If something's expensive, then you'll do a project with them, and then you will scavenge the object out of the project at the end with four dollar products, five dollar products, even the thirty five dollar products. Actually, um, people tend to leave them embedded in projects and buy another one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's that turns out to be a fairly compelling. It's one of the reasons why we've, while we have had challenges with the um, supply chain situation, um, and and those those challenges have probably fallen, and it's sad they've probably fallen harder on our enthusiast base than they have on our industrial base for a variety of reasons. Um, in the sense that um, enthusiasts have received, um, yeah, if we have been unable to build units. Mm-hmm. Um, probably enthusiasts have ended up finding it harder to buy Raspberry Pis. Everyone's found it harder to buy Raspberry Pis, but um, industrial users, we've largely been able to, maybe they're not getting everything they want, but they're getting something. Uh, enthusiasts right now, um, you can buy a Raspberry Pi, but you have to shop around to find somewhere that's in, <laughs> that's in stock. Um, what, what's happened is because lots of people have many Raspberry Pis, people have been thrown back upon the Raspberry Pis they already have rather than mm. buying new Raspberry Pis. And so that's why there's still lots of excitement and energy around Raspberry Pi and lots of people, lots of enthusiasts building things with Raspberry Pi because they're building them with last year's Raspberry Pi rather than building building one now. Um, you know, we have this interesting thing with software where we talk about back to cost structure. All of our operating systems releases run on everything we ever made. 
so we don't have an obs- a planned obsolescence strategy. We did a, a bullseye, Debian bullseye software release last year, last autumn, and I, for a week before the launch, uh, actually for about a month before the launch, um, ran that on a 2014-era Raspberry Pi Model 1B um, on my desk to make sure it was good. And it wasn't actually good at the point where I first started doing that. And one of the one of the things that the, the annoyances for the software team in the last month of the releasing process was me saying, hang on a second, here's the 2015 software release. If I grab a window with my mouse and I waggle it, it's smooth. Here's our new one. If I grab a window and I waggle it, it's jerky. What's that? What's that about? Fix that. <laughs> uh, here's here's the memory footprint. Here's what happens when I run top. Here's the amount of memory that's reported free in 2015. Here's the amount of memory that's reported free this year. Absolutely happy that the new operating system consumes a little more memory, but I will give you an allocation of 10 megabytes. That's a 512 meg device, the old Raspberry Pi. So I'll give you an allocation of 2% of the uh, memory of the device per year for bloat. So if you've had five years, you can have a tenth of the memory on the device of additional bloat. Over time, that really does add up and make the system hard to use. But we had more bloat than that. And so there was that kind of user interface responsiveness and memory bloat figure uh, were some of the last optimization items. Uh, And that means that you can have a 2014 era, 2012-era Raspberry Pi, and you get it out of a drawer, and you're not having to go back and download old operating system releases from us. You can download the new one. And so that's helped people, I think, a little bit. It's an additional cost for us because it's more testing. It's more, it's me being a Mm -hmm. pain in the neck to the software (laughs) team. Um, But it, it, it it does help people stretch the devices they've got. We have to take one more break, but we'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're back. One of the things that I think is interesting is that the chips we've been talking about are cell phone chips, and the cell phone supply chain exists now. They make a lot of chips, they make a lot of parts. You see those parts get recontextualized and all kinds. I would say LCD screens 
Mm-hmm. I'll see, right? Like you see them all over the place. Like, why are they cheap? Because cell phones exist. Yeah. What is an, what is an, uh, I guess now a meta quest Two? it is a mid range Android phone on your face. Like mm-hmm. just recontextualize all these parts for you. That means the chips have gotten more capable. Right, I see a lot of people doing media servers or like Chromecast replacements with Raspberry Pis, more traditional consumer products. Uh, I have a Raspberry Pi here. It's my favorite product in my entire house. Um, it's a product called Hoobs. It's a home kit out of box. Mm. And it, uh, home bridge out of box. And it yes. literally just is a Raspberry Pi that connects my ring cameras to home kit on my iPhone. Mm. Because Apple yeah. and Amazon would prefer not to talk to each other. So some guy just... It's a whole company that does does this. Yeah, it's amazing how how often do uh, you see this with like you know Tesla and uh, yeah, the number of Tesla Raspberry Pi Tesla hacks because yeah, Tesla don't want to talk to anyone else. Yeah, so so you, there's like just a lot of middleware that gets built with Raspberry Pis. Right? Yeah, you know the sort of tell your we kind of call it tell your mom sometimes tell your mom that such and such. Well, tell your dad that such and such. <laughs> being, the, being the sad kid in the middle between mom and dad is sometimes uh, there's sometimes money to be made. Uh, there's sometimes money. To well, be so made that's there. that's my question for you, right? I see that is well, they just shipped me a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> like you open the box, well, here's just a Raspberry <laughs> Pi. Um, like maybe I could have made this on my own. Um, do you think about expansion into those areas do you think man like the market for raspberry pi based plex servers is very high we should start making some of those on our own at potentially higher margins because here's a company that's just buying our kit putting it in a 3d printed box with some pre-labeled software and selling it as a consumer product now we now we love those people one of the reasons why have we been successful why have we been able to defend our niche uh we've been able to defend our niche in, in large part because we don't pick winners for in my language that would be picking a winner um that would be picking something that we think is uh, worth pursuing us and applications worth pursuing ourselves we don't tend to pick winners in software either so we don't tend to optimize specific applications we tend to try to do as much middleware level optimization on the platform as possible because then those hours those engineering hours benefit as many applications as possible uh we do op- optimize xbmc uh, Cody, rather sorry, living in the past, we do optimize the Cody, me- Cody Media Player. You and I are from the same exact suit, man. Like, I liked XBM too. I thought that was a nice yeah. name. You know, it was nice. It's heritage. Um, we optimize that. We optimize Chromium um, yeah. because those are those are applications which are so ubiquitous as to almost be middleware. Um, no, we, we're very happy to make a few bucks. Yeah, we only need to make a few because we sell a lot of units. We we only need to make a few bucks on each unit. If someone takes a Raspberry Pi and puts it in a box and makes a hundred bucks on it, that's great. Well done, that person, because that person took risk. Yeah, that person put all of their eggs in one vertical. If it doesn't pay off for them, they make no bucks. Uh, and if it pays off for them, then then they make a hundred bucks a unit, and 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 that's that's fair reward for the risk they took. We're we're kind of a horizontalizing platform. The the interesting thing with Raspberry Pi is that we build this thing that has there were lots of little verticals and whether those were consumer verticals or industrial verticals or verticals that didn't exist because they were too small to justify the investment in developing a, a hardware platform to address them. What Raspberry Pi does is it sort of smooshes all of those verticals together into one big horizontal blob. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the residual bits of, ver- of, it, of vertical specific in- into expenditure, innovation, implementation get done by other people and the profits, the incremental profits associated with that verticalization, re-verticalization of the horizontal Raspberry Pi platform um, flow to the people who take the risks, and that's great for them. It's great for them, and I want no part of it. I'll, I'll, take, my, <laughs> I'll, I'll take my couple of bucks a unit. Thank you very much. 
Okay, well, that's very idealistic. Uh, do you oh, no, it's just it's, it's purely mercenary, right? I mean, I just it's it's the business model that we're good at, and it's the business model that we think we are. You know, there's a reason why there isn't one big. Well, I mean, there's Amazon, right? But there's a reason why there isn't the one big company that does everything. And yeah, we are good at what we do, and we would be bad at what many of our customers do with our platform. Right, but when I say it's idealistic, do you have investors? Uh, we do. Well, we have one big investor. Obviously, we have the foundation, and we yeah. have a we have the usual fiduciary responsibility of an organization to its big shareholder. Um, we did a forty five million dollar uh, raise last uh, September from a couple of investors, and so we have traditional fund manager money in the organization now. Uh, we, we we're lucky. We we found some great partners who believe in what we do and believe believe that what we do is the best way to make money, and uh, and they are supportive of our strategy, I think. Okay, so you've got a couple of great investors who, who know you're not going to go try to eat some vertical market. Yeah, there are right. lots of rumors that you might go public, that you might IPO mm-hmm. the company. Yeah. Are you an IPO the company? Uh, there's a there's a war on, right? Um, <laughs> um, I mean, sadly, I mean, it's terrible, right? I mean, there's a, yeah. we are in a, an unprecedented time now and the very smallest and least important consequence of the unprecedented time that you I think the, the the graph of the have an exponential graph of the number of uses of the word unprecedented in the last two years yeah. um, the very least and least sad consequence of the unprecedentedness is that it's hard to float companies right now mm-hmm. so uh, you know would we at some point yes we might some of the things we do are very expensive and require large amounts of capital to make them happen. And obviously, the public markets are a place that you could go to raise that money. There are other places you could go to raise the money as well, and obviously, we have done recently. So I would probably, I would never say never. I think probably the public discussion of the possibility that we might float the company has run ahead both of our appetite for it uh, and of the kind of market level feasibility of floating anything at the moment i mean my view is certainly i don't know what it's like in in the us my view is in london markets are basically closed right so um it's hard times bracketing all that which i (laughs) i imagine is very challenging and certainly unprecedented let's say you do ipo you now you got a lot of investors Mm. they tend to want growth and they might come to you and say things like they're taking your $4 board and they're shipping a $100 product and it's a making $70 worth of margin on that. Just go, we want it. We just gave you all this money. Go buy them. Like I, uh, I can see that very clearly when Google bought nest, they basically said, go on a shopping spree. And this might've tanked nest. I think if you ask Tony Fidel, he will tell you, this is the thing that tanked nest is Google t- made them go buy stuff. They didn't really want to buy. Uh, I think the Dropcam CEO would happily tell you he did not want to be right, but that's like what happens. You get a bunch yeah. of money, and the the simplest way to grow is to just like buy your nearest thing and buy the next high margin thing. How would you protect against that, given what, everything you said? Well, I say a couple of things. Um, I'm not sure the market, the public market, actually really does prize that, and that the, mm-hmm. the public market imposes a fairly swinging discount on uh, inorganic growth 
um, you don't get the value. You cannot bolt a business together out of inorganic growth and expect the same multiples that you would get for organic growth. I think that's I think that's uh, certainly in the UK that's a pretty established fact. You you, you get penalised for not having been smart enough to figure out how to go do it yourself. <laughs> um, uh, so, I appreciate. So there are some challenges associated with that which might not apply to a division like Nest inside a large company going and purchasing some, some purchasing some inorganic um, growth. I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that if were one public, you would hope that one's investors had become one's investors because they like what you do rather than out of a conviction that you should go do something else. Subsequent to being a, a games person, I come from a semiconductor industry background. And semiconductors is the toughest world. It's the most demoralizing world, right? I mean, you think about the intelligence that goes into making the Wi-Fi chip that goes into a, a smartphone, and you think how little money... Uh, out of the whole stack of the hardware bomb for that platform is appropriated by the Wi-Fi chipset vendor. Bill of materials is yeah really yeah, yeah. Bomb, not, yeah not bomb, I had yeah. so much fun. I had so much fun <laughs> at the, uh, the 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 I remember when I was 2011 when we were when we were designing Raspberry Pi and I was sat at Heathrow Airport in the departure lounge. Oh no, Pete Lomas, my friend who, who designed uh, my friend and co-founder who designed uh, the hardware, and I was on my way to California and I said to him something like, "Can you send me send me the bomb because I'm going to be on a plane for." <laughs> 10 hours. It's a lot of time to work on a bomb. You can get a lot of work done on a bomb on a plane in 10 hours. Um, um, and I was just aware of this circle of silence expanding away from me. Uh, uh, and I'm worrying that the circle of silence would intersect one of the gentlemen with the MP5 uh, submachine guns. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so, so anyway, bill of materials. Um, yeah. You think of the small fraction of the, the hardware bomb that any, any vendor of a PMIC vendor, a Wi-Fi chip vendor, you know, any, anyone who's, who's, you know, RAM vendor, uh, you know, these people are doing huge amounts of work. I mean, they're, they're doing fundamental, pushing forward to the bounds, the, the boundaries of human endeavor, the boundaries of human knowledge, and they huge amounts of work, vast sums, and then you make a few bucks. And then that's a tiny fraction of the hundreds of dollar value of the, that, that's achieved when that product is sold to a customer, which itself is a tiny fraction of the services value the, mm -hmm. When you're a software, these guys are software companies for recurring revenue. The, the the tiny fraction of the app store value or the cell phone network operator value that is generated by all of this work. So I'm used to being in the semiconductor industry, which, which which does huge, amazing feats of intellectual endeavor and appropriates almost no value for it. Um, so so perhaps it seems very natural to me. But people do invest in semiconductor companies, right? Um, and it is felt to be a, a thing that people do, even though you can draw a picture that says you should really be a cell phone company or a network operator, or you should be Epic Games, uh, or you know you should you should be some other participant. Somebody has to be that participant in the ecosystem, and the rules of capitalism mean that sooner or later you will end up being able to appropriate almost exactly your cost of capital no less and no more and that as as part of someone's differentiate as part of someone's diversified portfolio your bit will make it's, it's a horrible sort of financialist uh, <laughs> description of how yeah. te the technology industry works but every niche over time will come to be no more or no less profitable than it deserves to be and i think raspberry pi's niche is actually quite a nice one and it's one that we are good at filling a lot of people want to use raspberry pi's for lots of things we send them up in the space it's still micro sd storage and usb power connectors maybe not the most reliable do you have ideas on how you would make those more robust is that a new product line is that something you even think about um, 
let's see, uh, buy good SD cards. Uh, there's a huge. Uh, the problem. It's a problem with SD cards. Like it, it's it's um, the thing about power supplies. Our official power supply has a captive cable. Why does it have a captive cable? Because USB cables are terrible. Um, you know, go to the number of Bell wire USB cables with you know um, ten ohm USB cables that we met earlier now. Even one ohm USB cables are pretty bad. Um, so uh, we have a captive cable on our official power supply because cables are terrible. The problem with SD cards and storage is not that the best SD cards are bad. It's that bad SD cards exist. So, you know, go stick it, go buy a SanDisk, go buy a, a real non-fake SanDisk SD card, <laughs> stick it in your Raspberry Pi. It's amazing. It'll never go wrong. The weakness is the provision of choice. What do we do in the industrial space? Our compute module products have EMMC soldered down on them. I would love a Raspberry. I, actually, Raspberry Pi with soldered down EMMC, actually, for some of our industrial customers, is something that comes around quite frequently as a concept. I suspect it's actually a product we would have launched by now had we not been in a semiconductor shortage situation for the last couple of years. Yeah, this is my next question. How has the chip shortage affected you? Uh, it's very bad. We sold the same number of, chip, of, of Raspberry Pis last year that we sold the year before, uh, but we entered last year with um, about a half million unit customer backlog, and we left last year with several million units of customer backlog. Now, there's some panic dynamics in that number, so you can't just take the customer backlog and say, I would have, in a unconstrained market, I would have sold seven plus X. Uh, you have to apply some discount factor to X to account for the fact that people are multi-ordering from several places, or they're trying to build buffers, but you can use certainly millions of units of foregone volume last year, so that that's unfortunate. I, it actually, the interesting thing is, a big part of Raspberry Pi's uh, value proposition is actually X stock availability, so the, the ability to buy a Raspberry Pi, or huge numbers of Raspberry Pi's, 10,000, 50,000 Raspberry Pi's from stock tomorrow, because that's what Raspberry Pi's are like normally. What's really happened if you think a 7 million unit, let's say 7 million units a year business, 2 million units a customer backlog, that's three to four months of demand. Uh, so there are, on average, and it's poorly, it's unevenly distributed, but on average, there's a three to four month lead time for volume availability of Raspberry Pis. That's actually just a traditional company's model. That's just how most other people's hardware is. So what we've done is we've been beaten back to a traditional <laughs> business. We've had this weird, amazing business model, and we've been beaten back to a traditional business model. It's no worse than it. And well, those people who are in that business model have been beaten back to one year lead time. So yeah, it's, it is awful when somebody has built their product on our product and made a commitment to us, and we are not able to meet the service level that they have come to expect, even if it was an amazing service level, it's the service level that we want to be able to offer. And and so we have a small sales force. We're not really a selling organization. We're more a, a letting people buy organization. Um, but we do have a small sales force. Um, and they spend almost their entire time now managing our industrial customers through the shortage and really looking someone in the eye and saying, do you really, when you say you want 500 Raspberry Pis, do you really want 500 Raspberry Pis? Are you building buffers? How many do you need tomorrow so your factory doesn't stop? Oh, 10. Okay, I'll send you 10 tomorrow and I'll send you 10 the next day. Um, so, you know, that kind of very, and it's incredibly labor intensive, but it's the way we're getting our industrial customers through this challenge. And when, honestly, when people come to us, we're not letting many people down as long as they're realistic about uh, So that hurts. The other thing that hurts is the enthusiast community is really the heart and the energy of Raspberry Pi and the fact that the, the shortage is affecting people's ability to buy their first Raspberry Pi or their fifth or their tenth personal Raspberry Pi. That's very painful to us. 
mitigated a little bit, as I said, by the fact that most of our greatest enthusiasts have very large personal reserves of Raspberry Pis <laughs> that they can dip into. They can go to the, go to the vault and get a Raspberry Pi 2 or a Raspberry Pi 3 or just last year's Raspberry Pi 4. That does mitigate it a little bit, but it's just these people are so important to us and la- letting anyone down is painful and you know, you can't, I don't know what it's like in the US, but you, you can't buy cement in the UK. Cement is on allocation. Fence posts, fence panels are on allocation. And you can see people I know who work in the, in the, the construction trade and how much it hurts them that there are things that they want to be building for their clients that they can't build. And, it, and it's, it's as much about the that emotional thing as the financial thing, because we're still selling a lot of computers and we're still making a lot of money. And our customers are still buying a lot of computers and, and using them to make a lot of money. But it's that emotional feeling. is It's not a good feeling. And, and I hope we'll be out of it soon, but time will tell, right? Yeah. Last night, Aaron, question. What's the uh, wildest thing you've ever seen done with Raspberry Pi? Um, I don't want to say the cucumber sorter, but it is still the cucumber sorter. Japanese engineer... Elderly parents running a cucumber farm. Uh, Japanese cucumbers need to be sorted into 23 bins. And it's challenging as you get older to, to keep doing that. And so um, this chap trained a TensorFlow a machine vision model to discriminate between different levels of spininess and colorfulness and ridgedness and length and, and so forth um, of Japanese cucumbers and to perform a preliminary sort uh, <laughs> to, to assist his parents as they got older. It, it's, a, it's a flippant example, uh, but it is slightly wild and it's it's a poster child for a particular thing about creativity and a particular thing about unlocking uh, the power of general purpose compute. Right, we're a general purpose compute company. We make general purpose computers. We believe in general purpose computers. We hate appliance computing. Appliance computing will never let you do that because that's not what it's for. Appliance computers let you do the thing or a small variant on the thing that the appliance creator wanted, had thought of. General purpose computers let you do whatever the hell you want. Um, and that's why we love them. And that's why we're going to keep making them. That's great. Well, that's a great place to end it. Even this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for coming on Decoder. Well, thank you very much. Thank you again to Eben Upton for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.